good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. My name is Kristen. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, I am on the leadership team here at Novation, and I'm filling in for our lead pastor, Scott Applegate, today, because Scott and his wife, Janelle, are in Hawaii right now visiting their oldest daughter, Chase, and her husband, Ethan, and their brand new grandbaby, little Jolene. Isn't she precious? They are just soaking up all of the baby snuggles and loving on Chase and Ethan right now. So while they are gone, I am holding down the fort. I'm going to be teaching today and again next week. Scott will be back next week. But in order to give him time to just focus solely on his family, I, um, I get two in a row. So... Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm excited about today. It's gonna be a great day. Um, who has been watching the news unfold over the last couple weeks with the death of the queen? Anybody follow it? Okay, so I'm like weirdly fascinated with the British monarchy. I lived in Scotland for a while when I was younger and I actually got to go and I did a tour of Holyrood Palace, which is the queen's residence when she's in Scotland or I guess the royal family's residence now when they're in Scotland. So I have just been watching with all of the interesting and, and really kind of beautiful celebrations and traditions and one of my favorites that I read about, upon the death of the queen or the reigning monarch, the head beekeeper has to go and announce to the bees the passing of the queen and, and the new king. Isn't that crazy? Because otherwise there's like a, a superstition that the bees will leave the hive or they'll, they'll stop producing honey. I was fascinated. They tied black bows on the hives. Anyway, we are going to be looking at a monarchy today, not the British monarchy, but we are actually going to be looking at Israel, when Israel decided to be ruled over by a king. We are entering a new series today called Longing for the King. If you have been with us, then you know that starting just after Easter, we have been undertaking this adventure of working our way through the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Every Sunday morning, we have been looking at important events, patterns, themes, characters that we encounter in the scriptures. And as we're doing that, we are learning to see the way that the Bible is a unified story that points us to Jesus, how it's all connected. And it's been a really wonderful journey so far. So today we we're coming out of studying the book of Judges. Scott taught on the book of Judges a couple of weeks ago. And the book of Judges, the time of the Judges started with the death of Joshua after Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. And then Joshua died. And then Israel began to be to be led by judges, not like a courtroom judge, but like a military or a political leader. And the book of Judges is kind of crazy. If you read it, there's some violent, disturbing things that happen in the book of Judges. And what we see is a pattern of sin and rebellion on the part of Israel, the consequences of that sin and rebellion, their eventual repentance, God's mercy towards them and raising up a deliverer only for the cycle to begin again. And as Scott taught a couple of weeks ago, this period in Israel's history can be summed up by a verse that appears several times in the book of Judges, that Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So that has just taken place. Israel's been in this long period, it lasts about 400 years, where they were ruled by judges. And where we're going today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're actually going to get through the entire chapter today and look at the transition from the period of the judges to Israel 
requesting a king. So that's where we're headed. Let's just pray together before we really get started. God, thank you for Novation Church. Thank you for all of the people and the lives that just have found a new beginning here, that have found connection and hope and um, new life in you, Jesus. And this morning, as we open the scriptures, as we learn about who you are and the way that you have interacted with your people, God, help us to soak up the wisdom that you have for us. Holy Spirit, speak through me, work in each one of our hearts that we might be transformed, that we would be drawn closer to you and encouraged to follow you with all of our hearts. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's three main characters. There's Samuel. Samuel was the last judge in Israel. He was a prophet. He was a good man who encouraged Israel to remember their covenant and to be faithful to God. We're also going to see the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. And next week, that's actually going to be the focus of what we talk about is those first two kings. But for today, we're going to focus in on Samuel and on um, Israel's request for a king. So we're going to start by just reading the first five verses in chapter 8. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So the first question we ask when we read these first five verses is, was it wrong for Israel to request a king? It's a good thing to not want corrupt leaders, right? Israel was looking at Samuel. They're like, you know what? He's getting old. He's going to die. He's appointed his sons that are corrupt. They were taking bribes. They were perverting justice. They didn't want corrupt leaders. And that's actually a good thing, right? And if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, we actually see in Deuteronomy 17 that God had foreseen this exact situation. In Deuteronomy 17, God is giving Israel instructions and reminders about how they are to live in covenant with him, how they are to live when they enter the promised land. And God actually gives them provisions for this exact situation. This is Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15. When you come to the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so stop right there. So God actually made a way for this. He said, you may indeed set a king over you. But he does give Israel some very specific criteria for what that king should be like, what he should not do to begin with. We're going to read on. This is verses 16 and 17 out of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's the instruction. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay, stop right there. So there's three things that God says the king should not do this. And the first is that he's not to acquire many 
horses, which we're like, what's wrong with horses, right? But here's the problem, is that in the ancient Near East, horses were actually a military uh, possession. They, they were akin to power and strength in terms of their military so that the person possessing them, the country, the nation possessing them could attack their enemies and triumph over their enemies. So God says you're not supposed to acquire excessive military power and strength. The first part of verse 17, you aren't to acquire many wives for yourself because wives marrying people was for a political alliance and for the king's sexual appetite. So no, no military power and strength, no excessive wives, and no excessive silver and gold, which of course means wealth or money. So right here, what do we have? We have the big three that are still a problem today, right? Power, sex, and money. The king of Israel was supposed to be different than the kings of the nations around them. Instead of seeking after power, sex, and money, the king was supposed to do some different things. Here's what God told the king. Do this instead. This is still Deuteronomy 17. This is verses 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So God gave the king instructions about how to live differently. Okay, let's remember that. We're going to come back to those verses. But right now, let's jump back into chapter 8. So Israel has come to Samuel and said, hey, you're going to die. We don't like your sons. We want a king, basically. Samuel responds with a a warning to Israel. Let's read. This is verses 6 through 9 in chapter 8. Samuel was displeased with their request, and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. The next eight verses, I'm not going to read them all to you, but Samuel warns Israel. And I'm just going to summarize what verse 10 through 18 says. This is the warning that Samuel gives Israel about what a king reigning over them might look like. Samuel tells them, a king will take your sons, will take your daughters, will take your fields and your vineyards. A king will take your seed, take your servants, and take your flock. A king will take and take and take. Where else up to this point in the scriptures have we seen this idea of taking indicate that sin is at work, that people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're defining good and evil for themselves. The first place we see it, unsurprisingly, is in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is tempted by the evil one to disobey God, to take from the tree that God reserved for himself, and she's looking at the fruit, and we're told that she sees that it's good, and she wanted it, and she took it. 
A couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, we have this very strange account of the sons of God desiring the women of men. And Scott taught about this way back, probably in early May, if you're like, what are you talking about? Go back and listen to that message. But here's the important thing that I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 6 is that we're told that these sons of God, these warriors, desired the women, saw that they were beautiful, and took them. We're going to see this theme play out in other places. We're going to talk about it again next week. So I just wanted to take a little side note and point it out to you. I think it's worth maybe circling in your Bible, take, take, when you see it, because it causes us in our minds to go, oh, okay, I know what this is about. Somebody is operating in their own wisdom here. Let's keep going. So Samuel gives this warning to Israel. And now what we're going to get is Israel's response. And in Israel's response, we see the, the desires of her heart, the motives for asking for a king. And this is where the problem is. Let's read verses 19 to 22. This actually finishes out chapter eight. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. There's a lot that we can unpack here, but let's look at the four reasons that Israel gives for wanting a king. The first reason is because Israel wanted to what? Be like all the other nations. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. Here's the thing though. God had called Israel out from among the nations. God had called Israel to be different from the nations around them. In Exodus 19, this is where Israel has come out of Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai and God speaks to them and he makes a covenant with them. And this is what God says. This is verse five and six. six. <laughs> now then, cut that from the recording, please. <laughs> now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had called Israel to be his own special possession, but we have to go a little bit further. Why? Why did God call Israel to be his own special possession? Why did he call Israel out from among the nations? And to answer that question, we actually have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. When God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham, this is Genesis uh, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God called Israel out from among the nations to live differently, to faithfully represent him to the world around them by the way that they loved, by the way that they worshiped, by the way that they lived in community together for the purpose of blessing the entire world, of seeing what God is like so that the nations could look at Israel and experience Yahweh. That was the purpose of Israel being called to be different 
and yet they are rejecting their calling and their purpose because they want to be like all the other nations. Israel gives three more reasons for why they want a king. They want a king who will judge over them, and yet Yahweh was their judge. They wanted a king who would go out before them, but God already went before them. Think about the story of the Exodus. When Israel comes out of Egypt, God led them out as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When God moved, Israel moved. When God stayed, Israel stayed. God had already been going before them from the very beginning, and yet they're asking for a king who will go before them. And their fourth reason, they asked for a king who would fight their battles for them. They wanted a king to fight their battles. But again, we have so many examples in the scriptures prior to this point in Israel's history that God did fight their battles for them. That Israel was actually told, you need do nothing but be still. I will fight your battles. And yet Israel is rejecting the one true king for a poor imitation that will only ever fall short. As I was studying for this, I was reminded of a story from my own life. When I was about eight years old, it was Mother's Day, and my, my family went to church, and so my parents dropped me off in Sunday school, and in Sunday school, we made Mother's Day cards, and we decorated these little pots and put a plant in them, and they were for our moms. It was our Mother's Day gift for our moms. So church gets out, all the parents are lined up at the door, waiting to get their kids, and I see my parents, so I start gathering my things, and the kids are walking out, and kid after kid after kid is giving their mom their Mother's Day card and their plant, and here I come, walking out, proud as can be with my card and my plant, and I just walk right by my mom, don't say anything. So we walk, and we get in the car, and we get buckled in, and I'm still holding my card and my plant. My mom's in the passenger seat, and she turns around and looks at me, and she goes, Kristen, what did you make? And I was like, Mom, I made such a great card, and look how I decorated my, my pot for my plant. When we get home, I'm gonna give this to Mrs. Langdon next door. <laughs> my mom, she didn't say anything. She goes, oh, turn back around, we drove home. I'm oblivious, I'm thinking this is a great plan that I've come up with. We pull into the driveway, I hop out, I don't even go into the house, I march next door, I march up the steps and ring the doorbell, and Mrs. Langdon, who's my neighborhood friend's mom, opens the door, and I give her a Mother's Day card and a plant, and I go back home. I gave the gift intended for my mother, who loved me and sacrificed for me and poured into me and birthed me to the next door neighbor. <laughs> I didn't know this at the time, but years later, my dad told me that my mom went upstairs and just cried her eyes out. Cry and now as a mom myself, I'm like, what was I thinking? Why would I ever give something intended for my mom to the next door neighbor? But that is exactly what we see Israel do here. Reject God as their king for a poor imitation. It's unbelievable. And the thing is, the kings that we will see who rule over Israel, they all are going to fall short. God intended Israel to be ruled by a king, but he intended Israel to be ruled by the one true king, King Jesus. And unlike the king that Samuel warns Israel about, King Jesus will never take and take and take. In fact, Jesus gave, he gave everything. 
He's a servant king who gives everything that we might have abundant life. I want to read a couple of scriptures to you out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived during the time of the kings, not at this particular point in Israel's history, but a few generations from now. And he spoke many prophetic words about the king who was to come. And I want to read you two of them. This first one comes out of Isaiah chapter 42, verses one through four. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. A few chapters later in Isaiah 53, we have more prophetic words about King Jesus. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, he was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. What a different picture from the king who takes and takes and takes. The true king gave everything so that we could be healed, so that we could be whole. When Jesus comes on the scene, and we have a record of his life and his ministry in the Gospels. And he made amazing statements about the kingdom of God and about the kind of king that he was. And one of my very favorite statements of Jesus can be found in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus tells his followers, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. We could summarize that as to take and take and take but I have come that you might have life and have abundant life, not just any kind of life, but abundant life. Our king has come that we might have abundant life. So the question before us today is who is going to be my king? Who is going to be your king? Because the reality is, that there are little kings in the culture around us that are vying for our attention. And just like Israel, we are tempted to chase after those other kings, whether it's power, sex, money, maybe it's your image, success, a relationship, something that you really want to see happen in your life. But the thing about all of those counterfeit kings is that they take and they take and they take until you're empty and bitter and broken. They will never, ever satisfy you. Those things in and of themselves aren't always wrong. In fact, when they are submitted to King Jesus in their rightful place, they can be used for all kinds of good in your life and the lives of the people around you. But when we make those things the ultimate thing, we will only ever be disappointed. And just like Israel was called out from among the nations in order to be a blessing to the nations, we also as followers of Jesus were called 
to live differently for the purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known. But if we are not firmly rooted and established, then it is very easy for us to get swept along with the current of the culture, to worship those counterfeit kings. When I was 14 years old, I was in eighth grade, and who knows that middle school, it's not a good time for anybody, right? Middle school is hard. I was in eighth grade, I was 14, all I wanted was to be cool. All I wanted was for people to like me. I just wanted approval and I wanted friends. So one day, I was riding the bus home from school and I was sitting in the back of the bus, that's where the cool kids sat, right? And I was trying to be a cool kid, so I sat in the back of the bus. And one of the girls on the bus, one of the cool girls, said, guys, I have a great plan. When we get off the bus, let's all grind our gum into the hair of another student who was sitting at the front of the bus where the kids who weren't cool sat. And I'm sitting in the back and I'm like, I don't want to do that. But what I wanted most in that moment was to be cool. So what did I do? I went with the current of the culture around me. The girls in front of me got off the bus, ground their gum into her hair, one after the other after the other. And I was almost the last. There was one person behind me. And if I had been the last one, I don't think I would have done it. But because there was one person behind me, I did it too. Ground my gum right into her hair. The next day, she came to school. She had long blonde hair. She came to school and her hair was chopped off. She never said anything to any of us about it. I never said anything to her about it. But I've used this story with my kids. I've told all four of my kids about my failure in that moment to illustrate for them the importance of being rooted and established, of submitting to King Jesus so that you don't get swept away with the current of the culture. Well, I told my son Owen this. This was a couple years ago now. I told Owen this story, and he was just, he couldn't believe it. And he, I finished telling him, and he goes, well, Mama, did you ask her for forgiveness? And I was like, nope, I sure didn't. And he said, well, you need to say sorry to her. And I was like, you're totally right. God like convicted me through my little eight-year-old boy. And so I, found, I, I didn't know what happened to this girl. I wasn't Facebook friends with her, but you know Facebook. If somebody's on there, you can find them. I found her on Facebook. I sent her a message apologizing for this atrocious thing that I'd done 25 years ago and sent it off and I never heard back. I was like, well, you know, I, I tried. I kind of forgot about it. Well, then last summer we celebrated our 20-year high school reunion a year late because of COVID. But we're at the high school reunion. I helped plan it. So I'm there setting up early. And we were so early that the name tags weren't out on the table yet. And this woman comes walking up to me and she goes, hi, Kristen. And I look up and I'm like, hi, I don't know who it is. Like, I just can't place her in my mind. And she can see me struggling to come up with her name. And she goes, um, it's me. I, I'm the one that you sent the apology message to. And I was like, hello, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it was so awkward, but also so wonderful. Like we actually got to catch up over the co course of the reunion and she did forgive me and we're able to move on. But I just think of that moment and you know, it's, it's small and it's immature and it's the stuff that happens when you're in middle school, but it's a really good illustration of what happens to us when the stakes are higher when it's gonna cost you something to tell the truth at work, 
when it's hard to walk away from a relationship that you know is not honoring God. Those things cost us something. And if we are not firmly rooted and established and we have not made a commitment to submit to King Jesus as ruler over our lives, then we will get swept away with the current. (coughs) Excuse me. So how do we do this? How do we continually submit? (coughs) Sorry, one moment. How do we continually submit ourselves to King Jesus? And what I want us to do is actually go back to those verses that we read out of Deuteronomy. Look at the instruction that God gave the king so that the king would not be swept away and do what the nations around him were doing. There's three things that God instructs the king to do. We read them earlier. The first one was that the king was supposed to have a copy of the teachings, and he was supposed to read it every single day. We can do that too. We need to meditate on the scriptures. We need to dig into God's word and glean all of the wisdom that is there for us. Learn about the character of God. Look at the life of Jesus, the principles and the practices that we see in his life. We need to be firmly rooted in the scriptures because then when those tides come, when the current wants to sweep us away, we've got something to hold on to. We've got roots that are growing down deep so we don't get swept away. The second thing that the king was told to do was to fear the Lord by obeying him. To fear the Lord and obey his commands. Now, I don't know about you, but obedience is hard. And oftentimes, I don't want to obey. I don't feel like forgiving when I've been hurt. I don't feel like making room for someone else's faults when they inconvenience me. I don't feel like being honest when it's going to cost me something. Obedience is hard. But when we take that step of faith and we say, Holy Spirit, will you help me walk in obedience even though I don't feel like it and I don't want to? We slowly build up muscles. It's like muscle memory when you work out, right? You slowly build up muscles so that it becomes easier and easier to do the hard thing to walk in obedience. And then the last thing that the king was instructed to do was not to lift his heart above his brothers. The king was to walk in humility. And this is why I think this is really important because when we are humble, when our posture is one of dependence on God, when we're pouring over the scriptures, when we're submitted to King Jesus, then we are much more sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're much more receptive to people in our lives who can maybe see blind spots that we're not seeing, who see when we're getting off track, when we're beginning to chase after those counterfeit kings, and we can make those adjustments to come back under the rule and reign of the one true king. Because Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus did everything that needed to be done so that we could walk in abundant life, in freedom, with hope and joy and peace characterizing everything about us, even in times of trial, even when things are really, really difficult. But the thing is, I know the propensity of my own heart. I know the temptation that I face every single day to worship those counterfeit kings that in the moment look so desirable, that look so good, 
that look like they're going to satisfy. And so where I want us to end today, I know that listening to a message like this, it might cause you in your own heart to realize the places where Jesus is not having control, where you are not acknowledging him as king. Because here's the thing, we don't make Jesus king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. We can acknowledge it or not, but we can't change the reality of it. But when we submit to Jesus as king, when we give him control over every area of our lives, we will walk in the abundant life Jesus promised for us. So we're gonna close singing the I am who you say I am song again, because that's what we need to be reminded of. We have been set free. We don't have to be slaves anymore to the counterfeit kings. We can worship and follow and submit to the one true king. And all of us know those places in our lives where we're not doing it right now, where we're not walking in faithfulness to Jesus. So this is a moment for us to confess, to acknowledge that before God. I love a good liturgy. I love to read a prayer that somebody else has written because sometimes I don't have the words to put to my experiences and my reality. So when I can read the words of someone else that speaks to that, it's such a blessing. So what I wanna do as we close and go back into worship, I wanna read a liturgy for us as we consider the ways in which we might not be acknowledging Jesus as King. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. Oh Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for, no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then my king, a beautiful thing by long obedience by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity and unto your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment, well done. Let's stand and worship the King together.